Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. You're listening to Hammer and Nails. Join podcaster Diane Woodrow in conversation with the renowned paranormal investigator Peter Van Melsen as the pair discuss a strange case the PI was involved with, known as the Hammerton Horror. Over six episodes, you'll hear the recording of Woodrow's podcast in the quiet setting of Rosedale Chapel, interspersed with dramatic cutaways designed to provide an audible glimpse of key events as they transpired. This is Episode 1, Van Melsen and the Discovery at Sutton Bank. Recording, Andy? Uh, yeah, we are good to go. Great. Okay. Hello, everyone. You are listening to The Woodrow Show. This is your host, Diane Woodrow. Regular listeners will be familiar with the name Peter Van Melsen. As a leading authority in esoterica and the occult, Mr. Van Melsen has assisted numerous constabularies over the years with cases of a distinctly unconventional or supernatural nature. His meticulous methodology was recently brought to the attention of the general public following the extensive news coverage surrounding his investigation into the Hammerton Horror, a case involving several highly unusual deaths and a mysterious house on the Yorkshire coast. Do you mind if I smoke? Uh, be my guest. Thank you. Not a problem. Today on The Woodrow Show we'll be kicking off a six-episode limited series titled In Conversation with Peter Van Melsen, recorded here in the quiet village of Rosedale, deep in the Howardian Hills of North Yorkshire, in a setting close to Mr Van Melsen's heart, Rosedale Chapel. Mr Van Melsen, Woodrow Show listeners have expressed a great deal of interest in the Hammerton horror. Perhaps you can start by telling us how you came to be involved in the case. Certainly, my dear. And feel free to call me Diane. Of course. So long as you call me Peter. Deal. Well, uh, my relationship with DCI, Mark Brent, goes back several years. For the benefit of those who may be unaware, Brent is the Detective Chief Inspector for North Yorkshire Police. I was first consulted with regards to that awful mesmerina business— I believe you gave the case some coverage at the time, Diane. For my sins, yeah. Well, as I say, Brent was no stranger to my work and methods, and so it came as no surprise that, following a particularly grisly and peculiar death atop Sutton Bank, the man came knocking at my door. I was invited to accompany him to the crime scene, and off we went. This was late September, I might add. It was rather strange. 
It seemed to me that autumn had been pushed aside in favour of an early winter. The sky was overcast, and it was bitterly cold. As the car ascended Sutton Bank, the only things that met my eyes from the comfort of the passenger seat were large, black clouds. <laughs> the damnable things were monstrous, and more so because I knew that somewhere beneath them, amongst the cotton grass and the heather, lay a body, a fresh victim of something outré, I ask you. Is there a place in this world more terrible than the bleak moorland of Britain's northeast? Well, I think some of our listeners might have something to say about that. That's a rhetorical question, mine. <clears throat> you were saying? It, yes, the moors. Cold, barren places at the best of times. But that day in late September, the dusky skies overhead, my word! What a ghastly place to find oneself! We parked some fifty metres from the body in a lay-by, just off the A-170. Much to my chagrin, we were forced to wade through the bogs and the knee-high grass, all the while battered and bruised by terrible gales. I must say, the horror of the scene was established long before I laid my eyes upon that poor dead soul, and to lay my eyes upon him was unfortunately my purpose that— dreadful day. Yes, Brent led me to the spot on which the body had been found. Then, surrounded by cameramen and a number of edgy officers, I approached the scene, and was afforded my first proper look at the prostrate form on the ground. The body was that of a young boy, his face pressed firmly downwards into a pool of brown water. His left arm was missing— as was his left foot. Cotton grass surrounded him, much of which had been crushed under the weight of something large, presumably his assailant. Well, I studied what remained of his upper arm minutely, and was soon convinced that the limb had been gnawed off by something with razor-sharp teeth. The foot, however, appeared to have been yanked off. The flesh that remained had a sort of stretched outlook. Imagine, if you will, a thick rubber band stretched to the limit. Just like that it was. I insisted that without flipping the body over, I wouldn't be able to provide any reasonable surmises as to the cause of the poor boy's fate. And so Brent cleared said action with the forensic analysts on hand, and the body was ever so carefully rolled onto its back. The moment my gaze fell upon the upturned face of that young boy, a cold chill travelled along the length of my spine, from the small of my back to the base of my neck. The boy was grinning. It was sickly sweet, that smile. His left eyeball was missing. I dare say, gouged out by the look of it. Nancy! Sorry. Sorry, Peter. Carry on. Yes gouged out. But compared to that awful grin, the eye-gouging wasn't so disturbing. It sounds horrible. Horrible it was, my dear. Diane, my apologies. Please continue, Peter. You see, when assessing a case such as this, a crime involving the victim of something unknown, it's important to look at more than just the body. 
You must study the scene in its entirety, the overall picture. As I said, the cotton grass surrounding the body appeared to have been crushed quite uniformly, as though this thing, whatever it was, had fought with the boy, perhaps even struggled with the boy, before putting him down. The boy's attacker had left nothing of itself on its body, other than the tooth-marks on the upper arm, and perhaps a claw-mark next to the eye-socket. But nearby, possibly pulled out during the struggle, was a clump of coarse black hair, heavy with moisture, clinging to a patch of heather. I asked that Brent have it retrieved for further analysis, and returned my attention to the body. I was convinced that, under the objective eye of a microscope, further coarse hairs might be revealed about the boy's person. Brent assured me the fingernails would be thoroughly examined, as I felt certain that it was the boy who was responsible for this de-hearing. And then, as the oppressive clouds continued to gather overhead, I asked that Brent relate the details surrounding the discovery of the body. I can see it now, clear as day. I wonder if I can paint a picture for you, Diane. Be my guest. Trail runner called it in. You know the type, out on the moors, come rain or shine. Said the body was practically in his path. That if the lad hadn't been lying face down, he'd have tried to resuscitate him. Didn't even notice the missing limbs. Just pulled his phone out and dialed 999. Where is he now? Sent him home. Why'd you ask? No reason in particular. You think he can tell us something? Unlikely. You sure this runner didn't interfere with the body? Sure as we can be. Sir? What is it, Davis? Uh, that clump of air has been bagged, sir. Oh, good. See that it doesn't go astray. Will do. Send frequency over, will you? Aye, aye. Frequency? Unusual name, I know. Officer Frequency was first on the scene. She might have something to add. Listen. What's with the grin? I'm sorry? The boy. Why on Heathcliff is he grinning like that? Sir, you asked for me? Yes. Van Melsen here is giving the place a once-over. Is there anything else you can tell us about the scene as you found it? Uh, not really, sir. The trail runner Mr Rogers led me to the body, and there it was, face down in the mud. Notice anything else in the vicinity? Animals, perhaps? Sir? Never mind, officer. Thank you. That'll be all frequency. Yes, sir. Damn it. Somebody get a tent over here, now! About that grin, Peter. Yeah, what about that grin? Well, at the time, it was just a hunch, really. You see, several elements conspired to form an image in my mind. To begin with, there was the fact that the body was prostrate. That was to hide the grin. Even beasts get the heebie-jeebies, Diane. <laughs> but seriously, the main component of my mental picture was the clump of hair, which later, as I suspected, was found to match a number of coarse hairs found under the boy's fingernails. And so I concluded that whatever had happened to the boy 
had started with an encounter with what we refer to in the business as a wonder moth. A what? A wonder moth. Uh-huh. A wonder moth is, as the name suggests, a type of moth. Incredibly rare species. Easily manipulated. Manipulated? By what? <laughs> we'll come back to that. Let's just say for now that this thing was sent out into the world with a purpose. Only it wasn't behaving as its sender intended. More on that later. The following day, Brent came knocking at my door again, and informed me that the body belonged to one Grant Smith, a Hamilton boy of seventeen, missing for two days. The boy was last seen in the company of his friends, Patrick Jones and Richard Gordon, both of whom, we later learned, had some peculiar, if I may say, outre interests. But before my investigations led me to the door of Patrick Jones, I felt it necessary to pay another visit to Sutton Bank, in order that I might assess the scene a little more thoroughly, aided, as it were, by the clement weather that the beginning of October was providing. As you may or may not know, Diane, I don't drive a car. I've never really been interested in the things. Yes, I've been a passenger on more than one occasion, but I find the whole act of driving rather distracting. If I'm on a case, I take a bus or a train, an environment in which my attention and imagination remain uninhibited. From Rosedale, only a couple of buses pass in the direction of Sutton Bank each day, and so, on October 2nd, I think it was, I caught the very first, just after 9 a.m. As I journeyed through the villages of the hills, I contemplated the nature of the thing which might be responsible for taking the life of the youngster. You see, I'm approaching the middle of life, Diane. I've seen and investigated many strange and terrible things. I mentioned the Mesmerina case in passing, but even prior to that I had seen much, much worse than bodies nailed to train tracks and vagrants sacrificed in the name of the Batrachian Queen. Yeah, well, the following may sound like a digression, but I assure you it's very closely connected to the case. A young lady came to my door once. Alice Hargreaves was her name. She looked tired, desperate. Her eyes were bloodshot, fingernails bitten to the quick. She told me that just a few days earlier, her daughter had been abducted from the backyard of her Hamilton home. She'd contacted the police, of course, and naturally they were doing everything in their power to find her. You know, asking questions, chasing down leads, narrowing a list of would-be suspects, etc., etc., but this was before the days of DCI Brent and his open-minded constabulary. The force responsible for this investigation had completely ignored one vital nugget of information provided by Miss Hargreaves. You see, Alice had witnessed the kidnapping. But this wasn't your average case of abduction. The thing that snatched the girl wasn't of humankind. It was a large, airy beast, she said. Though it walked on two legs, it hadn't a face, had barely any discernible characteristics at all, only that it was vast, furry, 
and its face, if you can call it a face, was little more than a big, round mouth, bulging with huge, biting teeth, razor-sharp. It had wings, too, she said. But of course the police at that time didn't want to hear about monsters or the bogeyman. No, they discarded the young lady's comments and pursued a more traditional line of investigation. But, as you can imagine, I wasn't so eager to dismiss the lady's account. And so we returned to the subject of the wonder moth. You see, when I say that a wonder moth is easily manipulated, I mean it literally. Certain individuals, frail of body, strong of mind, have devised methods through which to command these things. Telepathically, you mean? Hmm. It's along those lines, yes. Let me give you an example. If a person of this sort, the frail of body, strong of mind sort, wishes to increase their prowess in a physical sense, then they may attempt to acquire the vitality of another. Like a vampire? Well, that's as good a description as any. Let's go with that for now. The wonder moth is a strange creature. It's small and fuzzy, as you might expect, but the little blighter comes armed with a stinger about the abdomen. Commanded by our would-be vampire, it's sent out into the world in search of vivacious victims. The younger, the better. Locating a suitable target, it stings. The injected venom establishes a sort of conduit between predator and prey. Through this conduit, the vampire exerts its will over the victim and reels them in like a fish on a line. Do you follow? But we were talking about a case of abduction, weren't we? Miss Hargreaves saw her daughter's kidnapper. Where do these moths come into it? Well, in the case of the missing girl, I suspected that something was amiss when Miss Hargreaves told me that both her and her daughter had been stung by something just prior to the girl's disappearance. You see, it isn't uncommon for one stung by a wonder moth to experience hallucinations. This, I believe, is an inconvenient side effect of the vampire's will acting on the creature. Furthermore, these apparitions are often said to be solid, tangible. So, let me get this straight. You're saying that the moth's sting resulted in the manifestation of something physically capable of abducting the girl? That's about straight, yes. Prior to her disappearance, the girl and her mother had been reading a picture book, entitled The Winged Furball of Wigan. Do you see? A quick sting from the wonder moth, and the winged furball of Wigan swooped down from the heavens to whisk the little one away. But how inconvenient for our would-be vampire, Diane. A mere apparition doing away with the vampire's prey. So the appearance of that thing wasn't a part of the vampire's plan? No, Diane. Like I said, an inconvenient side effect. All the vampire wants is to establish a conduit in order to lure its victims. These unfortunate hallucinations prevent that. Wow. Which, presumably, would be a good thing if the victims weren't carried off to be, well, I'm not sure I want to think about that too much. How do you deal with it? <laughs> with great difficulty, Diane. 
Oh, I did everything in my power to find that little girl, but all to no avail. I searched the rivers and the woods, the towns and the cities. I even paid a visit to the coast. Nothing. The police came up short, too. And so, you see, there had been a thorn in my mind long before that body was found at Sutton Bank. And as I rode the bus in the direction of that fateful spot on the moors, my mind's eye frantically searched my memory cells for anything that might help me solve the conundrum. I asked the driver to drop me at the lay-by where Brent and I had parked several nights earlier, and he did so, leaving me to my business on the edge of nowhere. I traversed the still boggy landscape until I neared the crime scene, which was still cordoned off. The sky overhead was clear, and the air was still, so I felt fairly confident that if there was anything still to uncover that had been overlooked, I'd find it under such conditions. I traipsed through the cotton grass, danced around the colourless heather, and carefully stepped over the police cordon. I studied the pool of water into which Smith's heavy head had been placed, and eyeballed the crushed grass in the immediate vicinity. And then it occurred to me, perhaps it was worth a little dip into that small, muddy pool, just a hand, mind. And into the cold water I sunk my mitt, clawing at the gelatinous mud just inches below the surface. Almost instantly, my blind groping yielded results. I clutched something square and hard. Out the thing came in a filthy fist. It was a plain tin box, just small enough to fit into the palm of my hand. I opened it, and, much to my confusion, discovered a number of grey, round tablets. Certainly not medical grade, for these things appeared to be home-made, and they gave off a pungent odour, that of fertiliser or manure. I was absolutely certain that the tin had belonged to Smith, and suspected that that awful grin printed across his cold, dead face was somehow related to the fetid tablets the tin contained. And the beast of Sutton Bank, was it akin to the creature that kidnapped that little girl all those years earlier? I hoped not. Clutching the tin-box, I returned to the lay-by, and stood in quiet contemplation, waiting for the bus that would take me back to Rosedale. Okay. Sounds like a good point to take a quick break. Mm-hmm. Andy, can we pause for a sec? Yep. Is that okay with you, Peter? As long as there's a cup of tea in it. You've got it. Nance? Tea? Please, and a cup for Mr Van Melson, too. No props. Wonderful. I have to say, Peter, your account is compelling. You can't say I've ever heard anything quite like it. Such is the nature of esoterica, my dear. I beg your pardon, <laughs> Diane. <laughs> it's a breath of fresh air, Peter. The Hamilton horror case has really caught the imagination of our listeners. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Your tea, Mr Van Melson. Why, thank you. Thanks, Nance. You're welcome. Oh, marvellous. That's the good stuff right there. I'm thrilled. Andy, we'll get back to it now. Still rolling. Uh, ready when you are. So, Peter, 
You were waiting for the bus back to Rosedale? Oh, yes, yes. Yes, uh, I didn't have long to wait, fortunately, and spent the entire journey home pondering the curious tin box. I knew that eventually I'd be forced to turn it in to the police, but prior to that, I wanted to study it, absorb its scent, as it were, in my library at home. I live on the edge of the village, in relative seclusion. I enjoy my privacy, Diane, particularly in these trying times. This is why I don't own a mobile phone. I simply refuse to be connected to an invisible system. It's like a prison, a vast network of cells, in which the guards are able to reach out and disturb one's peace of mind by simply pressing a button. A little Orwellian, I know, but I'm a man of simple pleasures, a man who operates at maximum efficiency only when his privacy is absolute. Now, back to the point at hand. I returned to my humble abode, and made my way directly to the library. I collected a number of choice volumes, first hallucinogens and culture, the illustrated encyclopedia of fruits, vegetables, and herbs, Chance's underground cookbook, and went on to my favourite spot by the window. The library overlooks a modest garden, a vista from which I draw a great deal of satisfaction, an elegant view that focuses the mind. And there I remained for several days, breaks for food and rest permitting, of course, studying the volumes at length. In my impatience to identify the components of the homemade pills, I rather crudely cut into one of them. Within, I found a sizable fragment of a leaf that, when compared to leaves in Chance's cookbook, seemed to bear resemblance to jimsonweed. Jimsonweed is known for its hallucinogenic qualities, and so, coupled with whatever else was in there, its presence suggested the notion that young Grant Smith had wandered out of his depth in some sort of delirium. But that only explained part of the mystery. The fact remained that the young boy was torn asunder by something solid, tangible, a corporeal creature. I knew that my next course of action would be to track down the friends of Smith, the pair he was last seen alive with—Patrick Jones and Richard Gordon. Assuredly, they'd have something to say on the subject of his disappearance, and what it was, exactly, the trio were up to. Did you have any ideas at that stage? Well— over the course of those days in the library, I read cover to cover a dozen books, most of which centred around botany, and specifically hallucinogens. But also, my wandering eyes happened upon a passage in Fisher's Dreams and Visions, which suggested another possible use for jimsonweed, when combined with other herbs and who-knows-whats. Can you mute that, Andy? Done. Sorry about that, Peter. We've reached our time limit for episode one. Understood. Let's take a break, and we'll resume recording in ten minutes or so. Yes. Is that enough time to set up episode two, Andy? Oh, yeah, plenty. Great. Just give me a moment to record the outro. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today, folks. You've been listening to The Woodrow Show, with your host, Diane Woodrow. Today's guest 
has been the renowned paranormal investigator Peter Van Melsen. Our conversation regarding the Hammerton Horror will continue next Thursday at 8pm. In the meantime, be sure to share your thoughts in the comments section. Until next time. Andy? All good. Okay, Peter, let's take ten. Although, I have to admit, I can't wait to hear more. Oh, there's a lot more to tell, Diane, believe me. You have been listening to Hammer and Nails, a Horror Babble original podcast. This episode was recorded and produced by Ian and Jennifer Gordon, starring Ian Gordon as Peter Van Melsen and Leighton Davis, Jennifer Gordon as Diane Woodrow and Scarlet Frequency, Max Rudd as Andy Perkins, Jess Gordon as Nancy Peterson, Gareth Wynne as Mark Brent. Story and ambient music by Ian Gordon. Artwork by Duncan Kay. Title music, Van Melson's Theme by David Jeffries. Special thanks to Patrick McCone, producer. Copyright 2022 by Horror Babble.